Hello and welcome to another episode of Cosmic Echo, a Taylor podcast. This podcast explores a strange and bizarre phenomenon that happens in our lives when we sleep in altered states. In this episode, we're speaking with Tom Hatzis, who is a historian of psychedelia, witchcraft, magic, pagan religions, alternative Christianities, and the cultural intersections of those areas. He's also the author of The Witch's Ointment and Psychedelic Mystery Traditions. If you enjoyed this episode of Cosmic Echo and like to learn more about Tom and his work, you can visit our website at taleleaders.com backslash CE podcasts. Well, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's just start with your with your books then. So you've written three three different books. Um, would you uh, would you mind giving a kind of a brief synopsis of the first two, the uh, the witch's ointment and the psychedelic uh, mystery traditions? Would you kind of describe what 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 those are about, or and what maybe led to you uh, wanting to write about those topics? Uh, sure. Um, in reverse order, just being interested in the topics themselves, you know, like as far as, you know, what got me interest into them, I just, I, I have a thing for psychedelics and witchcraft, you know? <laughs> uh, so there's that. And um, so the witch's ointment was, um, it was a 10 year uh, laborious process of going to archives and translating medieval manuscripts and things like that to try to uh, uncover the history of medieval, let's call it entheogenism. What were people during medieval times doing in their kind of entheogenic rites? And so that book is not only about what these people were doing, but how the church actually demonized what they were doing as satanic. So that's the first book. Uh, the second book, uh, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, was just a uh, pretty much all the stuff that I didn't want to leave on the cutting room floor from the witch's ointment ended up in Psychedelic Mystery Traditions. Um, so it's almost like a prequel to the first book. I get more into the ancient history and ancient uh, psychedelic use uh, in Egypt, in Sumer, in Rome, of course, the Roman Empire, in ancient Greece, and uh, a little bit up until medieval times as well. But it, it mostly takes place back in um, in ancient times. Was there was there anything that really surprised you in, in, in all the research that Maybe you, did you have any uh, expectation of what you were looking for and, and maybe turned into something different? Yeah, actually, uh, quite a few things. Uh, in researching my book on the witches' ointment, I was very surprised to find out that the majority of witches burned up until about 1300, uh, 1300 uh, were men. Uh, we have in our popular ideas that witches were exclusively women. But if you go back to before what's popularly called the burning times in which and th at that time the majority was absolutely women but before that it was mostly men because men had i mean it was mostly a, a, like a political ploys to get rid of somebody every now and then someone will say oh they went after women because they wanted their land and it's like oh, poor women didn't have land in those days <laughs> like what were they going to take from them nothing so they went after the guys first uh so that was really surprising for me uh to find that out um let's see what else that uh plutarch actually does record bad trips among delphi oracles i i was very surprised about that apparently there was one oracle who was so overtaken by the fumes in the temple that she actually had what we would call a bummer and she couldn't continue with the ceremony which is you know we have this idea in the past sometimes or at least i certainly did of you know these these very 
um, just solid priestesses and priests and everybody could handle their experiences, but it turned out that wasn't, that wasn't always the case. Um, so that was something else that I found to be pretty interesting that he would even record. Oh yeah. You know, sometimes our, our, our little psychedelic ceremonies go wrong, you know? And, um, I mean, there's really a bunch of other stuff, uh, finding out the, the actual, um, entheogenic history of Christianity was really interesting. Um, that I wasn't, Let's see, I could put this. I wasn't surprised to discover that there weren't any mushrooms in Christian art. I know that that's like a popular idea. Uh, I mean, that I kind of already knew because I'd done some work in that area. But I, I was very surprised in finding out what Christians were actually doing and finding out that Christians were, in fact, very candid about talking about these kinds of plants. I mean, they talk about cannabis. They talk about opium. They talk about mandrake. They didn't have any problem with this. So the... Uh, in modern days, you have conspiracy theorists saying that, oh, they, they wouldn't talk about this stuff. And, uh, you know, it was the secret group of priests that just hoarded all this. No, no. They encouraged people to take uh, psychedelic origin, tells people to take drink, drinks of mandrake if they find that, you know, they're, they're becoming too horny or something or they, they want to go gamble or if they, they're feeling spiteful against somebody. He says, oh, yeah, just drink some mandrake beer. It'll mellow you out. You'll be fine. You know, so. You got another guy named Macarius who, I mean, he would light up cannabis, right, you know, before his congregations and then read from the Bible, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, like, and, and his biographer, John of Aleppo, had absolutely no problem writing about this. I mean, it's very kid. It's like, oh, of course, the patriarch lit up the cannabis and then started to say the prayer. And it's like, wait, what did I just read? <laughs> you know, so, so it's, uh, it, I guess that would be another one. It's just how candid Christians actually were about using these things and how that actually points to there not being any mushrooms in Christian art, because why would you secretly hide something? Why would you, you know, hide the mushroom, but talk about cannabis and opium? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, so that I thought, thought was interesting. Uh, the whole broomstick thing with uh, witches. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, heard yeah, yeah. that. That whole thing is total BS. Oh, I can't probably curse on your show, right? No, you, it's good, man. You can do whatever. Got it. So, um, uh, yeah, that that's total. Uh, the, the whole uh, um, uh, broomstick masturbation thing. If, if you're if you're familiar yeah. with that. Uh -uh. Oh, okay. So um, in popular lore today, uh, people will say that our image of a witch flying on a broom comes from uh, women masturbating with these psychedelic ointments. They rub the ointment on the broom and masturbate, and that's where you get the idea of flying on a broomstick, right? Because they were high, they were flying. Now, while women absolutely did use these kinds of entheogenic ointments, and they absolutely did insert them into their, you know, vaginal areas, that whole idea of masturbating with a broom was actually invented in 1972 by a guy named Michael Harrison, and then was picked up by the anthropologist uh, that just recently passed on, uh, Michael Harner, in his book, Hallucinogens and Shamanism. And it just it's it's a very sensational and charming idea but there's actually when you go back and look at the records which i did for 10 years um you know deep archival work i mean there's no truth to that at all i mean there isn't a single mention of it anywhere in history so that was something else that i went into my research uh, you know believing was actually true and then turned out to be totally false um and i would also say probably and i'll end it on this the most surprising thing was how many different ways people used these kinds of psychoactive plants and fungi. Uh, so much so that in my new book, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, I had to invent an entire new lexicon 
to describe these kinds of experiences. So uh, a moment ago, I had mentioned uh, the, the wise woman of medieval times using the ointments, and I refer to it as being an entheogenic experience. Technically, uh, at least within my new vocabulary, I don't call it entheogenic anymore. I call it somnotheogenic, generating divinity in dreams, because that's what these women were doing. They were taking these highly soporific ointments, rubbing them on their arms and, you know, in their nether regions. And they would have, you know, they would fall into this deep, lucid dream state where they would meet these fertility goddesses who would teach them the virtue of herbs and stones and how to prophecy and how to heal their neighbors. So um, that I would now actually call somnotheogenic, not entheogenic, because they weren't generating the divinities like inside themselves, as the definition uh, would state. They were generating divinities in this dream world, which they believed to be a totally different sphere of reality. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, the, speaking of Christianity, I mean, did you and, and witchcraft, did you, uh, in researching for the ancient psychedelic uh, mystery traditions, did you come across the any relation with that in the Cathars, the Cathar movement from, uh, well, I mean, they kind of died off around the 1300s or the 13th century. Did that ever the, come yeah. in your research? Uh, the Cathars did a little bit, but I didn't find anything about uh, them using any psychoactives. I did find uh, some... Uh, some kind of fringe groups of Waldensians, which was another heretical group at the time, and they seem to have been using psychedelics. And that's not to say that the Cathars weren't, it's just that we don't have anything to go on. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, speaking of, of this uh, idea of somnotheogens, somna uh, at the Spirit Complaint Conference in your, in your talk, you mentioned these five interesting Sorry. terms that, uh, that came up, and there were these kind of terms that you you created yourself and i was hoping uh would you be able to describe what those those terms are that, that you've that you've come up and and kind of how you how you mean uh that they're they're how people would use these terms uh in in their use of psychedelics what, what are they what are these differing uh five terms mean each and, and also how, how they how they're also used in, in different ways Sure, definitely. So um, I, let's start because I mentioned the somnotheogen. So again, to mean generating divinity in the dream world. And you have medieval um, wise women doing that. Now in the ancient world, as I get into uh, with psychedelic mystery traditions, you also have people going to temples of Isis and also Asclepius for that matter, and drinking opium potions. So not, not for its euphoric effects, even though they did recognize the euphoric effects of it, but rather, the opium served as this kind of like spiritual gurney to carry you into the dream world where you would meet Isis and then she would heal you in your sleep or give you instructions on how to heal yourself once you wake up. Um, so that would be one way that people were accessing these spirit realms in, in a somnotheogenic way, um, going to these different temples. Um, another way would be I have, so uh, as the counterpart to entheogen, meaning generating divinity within, I also have extheogen, generating divinities outside the self, because in a lot of um, cases, especially in, in ancient and medieval records, you have people invoking different spirits or aeons or daemons, as they were called at the time, 
And that's not generating divinity inside yourself. You're generating a divinity outside yourself. And I mean, even today, I have friends that, you know, will eat mushrooms and go looking for UFOs. They don't, they're not generating those aliens inside their bodies. They're hoping to, you know, pierce the veil and, you know, have some kind of interdimensional experience, you know, but that really can't be called entheogenic. It's exogenic, generating divinity outside the self. Um, you also have, let's see, entheogenic, exogenic. Uh, somnotheogenic. There's also the uh, using psychedelics in magic, um, which I call the pythogens. And this, I mean, in the ancient world, for every kind of magical operation imaginable, there was a way to use uh, pythogens in it. Uh, a lot of it goes to love magic and erotic magic and sex magic. They'd feed each other opium or mandrake or mushrooms or cannabis, you know, just kind of get you revved up, you know, to get laid. You know, it's kind of like a, we would call it recreational today, uh, but it was magical recreation. Um, you also have people using uh, uh, things like cannabis to prophecy, things like opium to prophecy, things like mandrake to um, uh, to necromance, at least according to a guy named Albertus Magnus in his uh, book, De Wegeta Biblius. He talks about necromancers using henbane, and, and that's how they would call up the dead. Uh, you have Scythians in the ancient world using cannabis to call up ghosts. So all of those ways would be extheogenic, generating divinities outside yourself. Um, or excuse me, would be a uh, pythogenic, pythogenic using uh, using psychedelics and magic. And again, it's rough because there are overlaps. Yeah. You know, there are certain operations that it's like, well, is that exogenic? Is a pythogen? Like, it's too bad we can't ask the person that was doing it. You know, that's mm. it, it's you know you'll get those overlaps. Um, but uh, then there was you know I had pointed out actually at a spirit plant medicine conference that it's like everyone in the room that was there it was about five hundred people agreed that psychedelics enhance creativity. But there's no word for that. Like, what is what is the word that means using, you know? So I came up with poetogen, using psychedelics to enhance creativity. And again, we have evidence from as far back as, as the Neolithic age uh, with the Tassili Caves in eastern Algeria. There's that famous, you know, for lack of a better term, called the bee shaman holding the mushrooms mm-hmm in uh, caves in, uh, I believe they're in southern Spain. Uh, they also show, you know, mushroom iconography. Uh, so this is all poetogenic. I also show in psychedelic mystery traditions. I, I know earlier I'd said there are no mushrooms in Christian art, but I did find a, a an illuminated manuscript image that, for reasons that I get into in the book, I have reason to believe that this person actually ate mushrooms and that's what inspired this individual to really embellish the lettering when writing out the chapter for mushrooms in uh, Santa Sardini's um, Liber de Venenos, the Book of Poisons. So this was just somebody copying out a manuscript and all the titles for all the herbs and plants and everything in this treatise all look very normal. Like there's, there's nothing outlandish about them at all except when you get to the entry for mushrooms it like has flowers on it it's all flower looking and flowing i mean this looks like a medieval hippie druid you know and it's just it's if you only see it in a vacuum it just looks pretty but when you i mean i looked in every page of this manuscript and there's only this one that looks like this that is so embellished so that i think is poetogenic um and Let's see what I think that's it. Yes. Um, 
Mythiogens. Oh, Mythiogens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't even know my own book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Mythiogens, which is generating epiphany. It's using a, a some kind of psychedelic agent to give somebody an occult secret. So in The Witch's Ointment, I write about these women living in Finnmark who would use ergot, which is the, the, the base element that forms a, 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 it's a precursor for LSD. They would be, they would put these little ergot spurs in milk and give them to people to kind of bring them into their group. And they would know all the secrets of, of occultism after they took this drink. And it's like, yeah, because they were having a psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, heretics did that too. Oh, sorry. Oh no. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, with that with that discussion about epiphanies and visions did you in all your research did you uh did you come across how how people using entheogens and as for uh for purposes of, of mythogenic purposes or pythogenic purposes where they they actually it had very real profound effects on say uh, a culture or a civilization or on or in history itself um Absolutely. I would say that the rites of Eleusis in ancient Greece, uh, and I go back and forth. Sometimes for me, the rites are mystiogenic. Other times they're extheogenic because you were they were The truth is they were both really. So we need a new word for that because they were extheogenic because you were supposed to have a vision of Persephone rising. So it's visionary, you know, a, a deity rising outside yourself. And it's mystiogenic in that in seeing Persephone rise, you have an epiphany that life is continuous and goes on and that there is no death. So uh, that uh, definitely the rites of Eleusis would be probably the, um, you know, the, the smoking gun of what a mystiogenic or exogenic, however we want to define it, experience in the past looked like. Now, of course, I wasn't the only one. There, there's the mysteries of Trophonus, which uh, Pausian, uh, Pausanias, excuse me, um, writes about in his geography of Greece, where he's given these two potions and they, they seem to work in, in some kind of way, almost like with DMT, where, or, uh, uh, excuse me, with ayahuasca, where you need the root and the vine, put it together. It seems like this was something, maybe it was like that, or maybe only one of them had an active ingredient in it. We don't know, but uh, this guy, Pausanias, would to be fed this uh, this drink, well, these two drinks, and then put into this small, almost like coffin-sized thing underground, which seems kind of terrifying to me. But <laughs> that's how they did it. And you would have you would uh, you would ask Trafalnus, you know, the deepest questions of your life, and he would respond, you know, and that would be your epiphany. That's another mystiogenic rite in the ancient world. Wow. What what about that? Uh, what about that one you, you mentioned the conference where? These these people were using it was uh, these seven seven men and seven women were. Oh yeah, that was a very fascinating. Could you could you talk more to that? Oh, absolutely. That's one of my favorite mystiogenic rites from the ancient world. Yeah, the, I gotta hold my nose one second. Sorry, you might want to pause this. <laughs> Sorry, we can edit it out. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yeah, the mystery of the light maiden. So, the mystery of the light maiden. Excuse me. Um was a Gnostic rite. And I just have to get into a little Gnostic theology real quick or else this won't make any sense at all. So uh, let me first say that when I use the word Gnostic, I'm using it in a very general sense. Uh, Gnostic beliefs changed from one group to the next. So we today commonly just like to set up this whole Gnostic versus Orthodox kind of paradigm. That was not true. First of all, all those groups saw themselves as Orthodox. 
we happen to call the guys that won orthodox, but they, you know, they, they were all orthodox in their own minds. But um, Gnostic theology changed from group to group. But there was one particular right that seemed to kind of uh, straddle different groups, which was the mystery of the light maiden. And the theology behind this was, in in a broad sense, again, uh, Gnostic theology holds that all all everything started with one supreme being. And that this supreme being is so far removed from humans that we will never be able to understand it. But there are these things called aeons that are kind of like a buffer between humans and the supreme being. These aeons occupy what's called the pleroma, or the fullness. Our, our modern Christian idea of heaven grew out of the Gnostic pleroma. So these, uh, this one supreme being emitted these entities into the pleroma they kind of came forth from it so uh, they, this this being was living right the supreme being was alive so living came forth as an en- entity uh this being was just so justice came forth as an entity this being was loving so loving came forth as an entity this being was wise so wisdom came forth as an entity and the mystery of the light maiden deals with this last entity of wisdom called sophia by many of the gnostics what happened was Sophia ended up having intercourse with herself and she gave birth to this bastard child called Yaldabaoth. Now, Yaldabaoth is what the Gnostics would call the Jewish Yahweh. That's why it kind of sounds like Yaldabaoth. Yaldabaoth sounds like Yahweh. Yaldabaoth was the creator of the material world and all that's evil and all sinfulness and materialism that comes with it. So Sophia was kicked out of the Pleroma for for this act, for creating a being that created the material world. Getting back to the mystery of the light maiden now, the seven women and seven men would be selected. We don't know how they were selected, but they would hold a cosmic orgy in which uh, they would have this this beautiful bedchamber that'd be filled with, you know, these decorative pillows and tapestries and burning incenses. And in one of the odes, one one of this Gnostic texts called the Ode to Sophia, uh, you can translate one of the incense names to Indian leaf, which was a common name for cannabis at the time. And the the historian Chris Bennett has shown very good evidence uh, in his book, Cannabis and the Soma Solution, as to why there's good reason to believe they're talking about cannabis. So what happens is through the sacred, um, through the sacraments, I should say, of coitus and cannabis, uh, the seven women and seven men would hold this orgy and the women would become reborn as Sophia's and the men would become cosmic Christ's. And this would allow Sophia back into the Pleroma as the light maiden. Hmm. So what, uh, would this occur every year? We don't know. Uh, what and what? What were they? Do you do you have a sense for what they they felt was the was the outcomes that uh, for their for their culture for however long these these people were the Sophias and the and the Christ figures? Like, well, what, what were they it, looking for? They were looking to escape materialism. They were looking to become what were called perfects. People that, under, that that had true gnosis, just meaning knowledge of the self, knowledge that you know you come from from the pleroma. So, uh, and in, in having these these kind of icons or these perfects, the the rest of the population would would uh, they would uh, they would fall more in, in line with the, this this belief system. So well, it 
It, it maybe that's what they wanted to happen, but the opposite is what happened. The perfects actually were quite arrogant and pretentious, and it was that arrogance and pretension that actually led to the proto-apostolic becoming orthodox, actually winning all the fights. Uh, one of the problems we again we tend to think of Gnostics as like these lovey-dovey hippies or whatever. Um, they were real assholes, actually. Some of them. Um, uh, Marcion was quite misogynistic too, and uh, so were several others. And they um, they they really kind of drove people away they were telling too many people look you know you have not reached gnosis you know you are not one of the perfects you're not one of us and then you have the proto-apostolic who later became the orthodox saying hey fuck it we'll take you hey come to our club yeah we we like you just the way you are come on in and that was it that's how the 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 proto-apostolic won the gnostics shot themselves in the foot i mean let let me just say their rites and mysteries were far more fun than anything the proto-apostolic were doing but unfortunately you know, just having that kind of exclusivity. I mean, you know, they chase everyone away, and so everyone went away. Yeah. And then you have another problem with other Gnostic sects where they thought that the sin, that the flesh was so evil that they didn't reproduce. So you have this group that are not creating new members, and they kind of have a, a position that's going to not attract many people. It's like, oh, I want to join your club. Okay, well, no more getting laid. Oh, fuck it. Let's see what the other Gnostics are doing. You know, like, you know what I mean? It's like, let me see what else is going on. I'm not going to join you guys. Like, I, I want to go have fun. Hmm. Oh. Well, um, well, and what about, uh, so what about all these, you said Sumer and, and of course, Egypt, and did uh, did you come across, I mean, I'd love to hear if, what, you, what you found from some of the really old stuff like Sumer uh, or Babylonia or anything. Sure. Uh, Okay, so one of the cool things, uh, getting back, not in Babylonia, but in Assyria, um, the word, their verb to smoke is actually kanabu, cannabis, where we get cannabis, um, which, you know, you, linguistic evidence is really tricky, especially in the ancient world, but that's pretty cool that it, it gives credit, uh, credence to um, Bennett's hypothesis that um, people really discovered cannabis probably just because they were looking for something to throw into their fires. You know, they just needed some kind of plant matter and they threw it on their fire and it it smoked up and, you know, the flowers, you know, ignited and everybody got nice and high and it was great. Um, And so it seems as if the Assyrians actually named their verb, you know, to smoke after the plant itself or rather uh, reverse that named the plant later off of their verb to smoke, meaning that that came first, which is kind of interesting. Um, there's also these pipe cups from the Bronze Age that are really cool that actually still have uh, resins of cannabis inside of them. Uh, there's also the Soma vats. Um, you know, people will often mistakenly uh, still go back to Robert Gordon Wasson's hypothesis that Soma was the Amanita muscarium mushroom. The, the problem with that hypothesis is that archaeologists have uncovered the actual temples where the vedic temples where the soma was mixed and they still have the vats and those vats still have resin in them Hmm. and they scraped the resin and they tested positively for cannabis opium and ephedra so we now we know what soma was it was a mix of cannabis opium and ephedra ephedra i mean that's a that's a that's an ingredient in cough syrup is it i mean is that ephedrin that's ephedrin Okay, different. Ephedra is kind of like a mild stimulant. Okay. Where where would that have come from? Oh, I don't know. 
I don't know. Uh, one of the things with the ancient world also, like I, there were very extensive trade routes and you had people going from here to there. So, uh, you know, all over the place. So even if something wasn't available in one place, it could be imported. I mean, uh, anywhere, really. I mean, the Mediterranean was a hotbed of this kind of trading activity. Um, as far as you'd mentioned Sumer, uh, we actually have evidence uh, called the Uruk Vaz, which which the Uruk civilization had predated the Sumerians. And uh, this vase shows the mysteries of Inanna's rise from the dead. Inanna was their their version of the grain goddess, the, the great mother that that, that uh, in Egypt would be called Isis, in Greece would be called Demeter. In Sumer, she was called Inanna. She was the original one, the original Earth Mother. And um, on this vase, it shows Inanna rising from the grave as both opium poppies and grain. So she had something to do with this. Now, we don't know what she had to do with it because we only have two fragments of uh, anything written about Inanna. One is Inanna's descent into the underworld, and another is Inanna and some magical tree. I forget the name of that magical tree, though. Uh, And neither one of them mentioned the opium or grain or anything. So we're just very lucky to have this vase that somebody at somewhere associated opium with Inanna. We don't know how, we don't know what it was all about, but this guy thought so because it's it's blazing right there on the vase. And the the uh, symbolism of grain and opium is found, and I get into it really deeply. I'm, I'm pointing at my book because it's back there, but <laughs> I get into it really deeply with uh, psychedelic mystery traditions and um, how this uh, this tying together of grain and opium can be found all over uh, the ancient world. In fact, in, in a certain part of Greece was actually called Poppy Town. That's how you know crazy they were about their opium. What was the what was the oldest tradition you you came across that that we have uh, any kind of evidence for? Inanna, the rites okay. of Inanna, yeah. yeah. With the uh, and again, it's it's a shame because we don't have we have no idea how the opium played into this religion, but it it certainly did. I mean, again, it's it's right there on the vase that it did. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Um, well, maybe uh, shifting course to, to your to your uh, it's it's your most recent book, right? It's uh, Microdosing Magic, a, a psychedelic spell book, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah cool, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to before maybe we get into that a little bit more because um, I'd, I'd like to talk about psychedelics in general and psilocybin especially because we're that's kind of it's it's a, it's in the news a lot lately. It's a lot of research. Um, wanted to get a feel for some maybe you know what. Especially because it's going to get, it's going to be a choice that a lot of people are going to be, are going to have soon, uh, whether it's, you know, legal choice or they, they find it on from someone, their friend or whatever they grow it themselves, however they choose to get it. Um, what, what is your, do you, you know, what, what would you recommend or advise or caution for someone that say, I'm, I'm, I, I have no experience. I'm, I'm curious. I wonder if maybe this can, can help with, uh, certain things, or I can, you know, what, what would you, what would be your, your, your kind of sense for someone that's, that's new and is, is interested in this topic? Sure. Uh, the first thing I would make sure is that you're, you're physically healthy enough to take these substances. Uh, if you have any kind of heart trouble or 
if you've had any kind of surgery on your heart or anything like that, uh, psilocybin mushrooms should probably be avoided. If you're taking SSRIs, uh, psilocybin should be avoided. You can uh, come down with what's called serotonin syndrome. And I mean, it's it's not lethal or anything. It's not deadly, but it's unbelievably unpleasant. Um, And if you have a, a family history of mental illness at all, you should probably stay away from this stuff. And also, if you're not sure about them, you probably shouldn't take them. Um, that that you know, other than the, the the health things, you know, if you're if you're physiologically safe to take psilocybin, but you're just mentally kind of on the fence, then don't take it. What that would be it, my advice. What does it mean to be unsure? Well, if you're like, oh, I don't know, should I do this? Should I, like, like, what do people think? Like, what about like, no, no, no. If you're not sure, if you're questioning doing it, don't do it. It's interesting about the the mental health because it, that's what a lot of these things are being used for. And you're and you're saying uh, maybe don't if you have a mental health condition as far as a history of it. Maybe maybe be more cautious about it. I would say yes, yeah, serious mental health uh, condition. Something like if you have a family history of schizophrenia, that's what I mean. As far as other things like depression, um, no, uh, psilocybin has been shown very effective in combating depression. So. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I'm glad you made that distinction uh, because, you know, there, there, there is that difference there. So, so say someone with, with, a, with depression, I mean, um, are there any risks involved from, from taking, uh, well, let's, let's talk about the, some of the levels of, of using psilocybin, for example, how would you, could you, could you go over those briefly uh, in, in your, in your book, you talk about the, you know, three different dose levels. Would you? Sure. Absolutely. So you have what's called the microdose. Uh, I call it a vitamin dose uh, because the um, it kind of answers that question of how big should the dose be? Because everyone always asks me that. How big is a microdose? Well, it should be vitamin sized, meaning you shouldn't feel it in the way that when we were when you were a kid, did you ever take Flintstone vitamins? No, I know they are. <laughs> okay. Well, I, okay. I did take Flintstone vitamins, yeah. and I never felt like I was high on Betty Rubble. Because it's a vitamin. You're not supposed to feel the effects of it. Uh, Microdosing works the same way. Uh, Although some people would argue, you know, you could have a little bit of a feel to it and you're still microdosing. Sure. Uh, I would say that a microdose is probably between 200 to 400 milligrams. And um, the size after that is the threshold dose, which is my favorite dose state uh to at least uh, to perform psychedelic magic in and that is uh called the threshold dose because you're literally standing in the threshold of having a psychedelic experience it's like you have one foot in this world the other foot's in the pixie world and uh it can be very challenging space to be and i mean your psyche is being cut right down the middle so um you know it, it's challenging it really is but i i personally i i kind of like that Uh, that space and then there's of course the psychedelic dose which is you know both feet are in the pixie world and then there's the uh the hero dose coined by terence mckenna where he was referring to five grams of dried mushrooms as the hero dose i i don't see the hero dose in the amount you take i take i see the the heroism in how deep you're willing to go and what I mean by that is that, so anyone of your listeners who reads my book, Microdosing Magic, will find out real fast that I love mushrooms. They're absolutely my favorite <laughs> medicine to work with, like no questions asked. But I have gotten 
far deeper and had far mo- more profound experiences with little milligrams of 5-MeO-DMT. So it's like, I, I dare I say, I when I took uh, my second uh, ayahuasca journey, um, I mean, counted as a hero dose, but it certainly wouldn't measure up to five grams of mushrooms or more. And yet it took me deeper than any mushrooms have ever taken me. So I measure, you know, the, the heroism by like, like how willing are you to just get really fucked up by your own psyche? Well, what, what are, <laughs> I mean, what would, and what would you either personally or, or, you know, generally, but, I guess, you know, we're talking about you here. So, well, I mean, what would be, what would be suitable goals that, that if you had to imagine goals for each, each level, um, what might be, uh, uh, good goals to aim for, for, with each amount, uh, for everyone, I mean, you know? Yeah. yeah that's going to change from person to person. Um, and I also, I should also say, I don't actually ever microdose. I'm always threshold dosing or higher, uh, but for safety reasons and for people that are just, you know, getting into this and they're, you know, curious about it. Um, and on the yes side of the curiosity fence, it, it's, you know, microdosing is, is pretty safe. And um, i sorry, I totally forgot where I was going with that. You'll have to excuse oh, me. Oh, I just put it for Oh, I was just asking, like, what, what might be, if someone's, you know, considering, okay, I mean, I, I know I want to take them. Uh, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm interested. Oh, the goals! Yeah, yeah. What, 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 you, what, what, is, what should someone want to achieve out of that? Yeah. Well, with microdosing, again, it depends on what it is you're going for. So, like, I have in, in my book, I, I talk about dose symbol cycle graphs and actually, you know, having a magical intention behind your dosing. So, I would say that it really depends on what, are you, like, what is the intention you're trying to get out of this microdosing practice. And I use different dramatic runes and sacred geometry in the book to like kind of make out microdose schedules. I wish I could had a copy near me. I could, you know, hold it up, but, um, um, I, I could, I could, I could, I could find one. It was, it's, you have some very interesting charts. So I, this is my favorite right here. Um, it's, you've got this, uh, Oh, the upside. Yeah. The upside down. egg. Yeah. 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 So that so a, a good goal for that one would be to just do the exercises every single day, um, and that one has some pretty tough exercises. The uh, the microdose spells to unasshole yourself <laughs> chapter, yeah. Because well, no, but I mean, I, I kind of feel like everybody could use a little unassholing. I mean, really, but so uh, yeah, the idea is to just like the, the goals that you have for each dose level, or just the goals you set for yourself. I mean. There's not, I don't, I have a very loose kind of program because I don't ever want to make it feel like, like, no, this is my way. You have to do it my way. No, no, no. Do the, you know, use the symbols and use the magic and use what is right and comfortable for you. And you'll get the the most out of your microdosing practice. Um, If you're using symbols that don't resonate with you, then you're probably not going to get much out of it. And it could be anything. I mean, hell, if, if if the golden arches of McDonald's resonate with you as the symbol of empowerment, then you should be, you know, dotting out the golden arches on a symbol cycle grab and taking your dose that way. And, you know, thinking about Big Macs and meditating on milkshakes or whatever, you know, whatever it is you want. But that's the whole thing about it is it's just getting your mind and getting just your, your focus and your intention into that space where you can make real magic happen, whatever it is. 
Well, like I did creativity magic uh, in, in this book, uh, well, to write both these two books, and um, you know I used a, a certain. It's, it's weird to say because it's called the moon cycle, but I don't mean it like you know like like the moon cycle. It's just it's in the shape of a moon, and on those days, that's when I would take my dose and do the creativity kind of uh, spell casting on myself as well as taking the dose. And my goal was to finish two books this year, and I did. So, talking about magic and spellcasting, what what might be because those, those for some people that might be like a, an abstract concept. It, it they didn't you know it's something we've sure. kind of lost lost touch with. What does that what does that mean? And what might be a real example of what you know how you might be cast a spell on yourself with with this purpose sure. in mind? Sure. So uh, the first thing I should say is with my particular uh, system of magic. You're always casting spells on yourself, never on anybody else. It's always so that you can be the most authentic form of you. You are a microdose of the cosmos. As Carl Sagan famously said, you are the universe trying to know itself. So what these spells are designed to do is more get you deeply in touch with yourself, who you are at your core, and bring that authentic person out into the world. I don't think that answered your question at all. Well, I, I, so yeah, I mean, that you did, but and 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 so, what what might be a tangible example of how you might manifest that magic in using these? Well, one, I would say finishing two books was a good thing. Uh, two was I have a story in Microdosing Magic about when I was going for a walk on this like snowy, sludgy, rainy day, and this guy actually swerved, you know, into a puddle, t- totally to be an asshole. And splashed me with water, and he was very successful. And so I'm now covered in freezing cold water. And I was only uh, a few, uh, maybe, I don't know, 20 yards from my front door. Uh, so I decided to go home. Oh, I should say one part, though. Because he went and splashed me with his water, he actually lost control of his car and ended up crashing into another parked car and dinging. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, my first thought was I yelled out to him. I said, that's what you get for fucking with a witch, you know. And so then I went back to uh, I went back to my house to change, and I'm like, oh, good. I like this guy. Just like there's people, you know, gathered around. I'm like, I'm gonna go rub it in this guy's face that he was just like, that's karma, buddy. And um, but as I was changing my clothes and putting dry socks on, uh, I I had this this epiphany. I was like, I was literally going through a microdose on asshole spellcasting session at the time, and it was. It was weird because we we tend to have this thing where, well, somebody, you know, disrespected me. That means I get to disrespect them back now. Like, like I now have full range. I have total immunity because this guy did this to me. Well, that's just egotistical bullshit. It really is. And so by the time I walked back to the scene where, where you know, hit this car, I was just like... I didn't turn him in or anything. And people were asking me questions about how he drove. And I said, no, he was driving really safely. And, you know, look at the condition the roads are in. I'm, I'm in Portland. God forbid they ever plow the streets when it snows. <laughs> so, you know, and as I was like, look, he didn't, you know, he shouldn't be held responsible for this. The roads are terrible. Right. And so his jaw dropped and he was like, I cannot believe that this, this dude is just totally covering for me right now after I was just, you know, such an asshole to him. So everybody breaks away and he takes me aside and he's like, you know, he says as much like I can't believe, you know, you, you you just did that. Like what? I was like, dude, I'm like, here's the deal, man. I don't actually think you're a bad person. We we all do things every now and then that 
we probably shouldn't have done. And, you know, we, we realized afterward, you know, maybe that wasn't so funny. You might have thought it was a joke, but when I was standing there covered in freezing cold water, it really wasn't all that funny. But still, I don't think you're a bad person. And I don't need to ruin this guy's life. What if he had a driving job? You know what I mean? And he lost his license. Or he had kids. Just, I'm sure he didn't need this on top of whatever he's, is going on in his life that he had to be a dick to me for no reason. So he went into his wallet like he wanted to pay me off and be like, oh, here's some money. I was like, dude, I don't want your goddamn money. Come on, dude. Like, just just remember what happened. And the next time you're thinking of kind of being a jerk to somebody, just remember this right now. And he said, I totally will. And we shook hands and we both just walked away. And I continued my walk in, in the sleet and the snow because I'd been cooped up for days. I was just like, I got to get out of this house. But, um, you know, that I think, had I not been on a, a, a microdose cycle that specifically was, you know, a DHS holification cycle, as I call it, I'm, I'm, I probably would have been back there and called the cops and said, yeah, arrest this guy. He's driving like a jerk, you know, like, but I didn't. So I think that that was a real, you know, that for me was the thing that made me realize, oh, my God, like there's something really, you know, extraordinary about these fungal allies. Like they totally just made me not be a total dick to this dude. And again, I had total immunity. I could have. And I didn't say anything other than that he wasn't driving like a jerk, even though he was. What what do you feel like in that instance and all your all your other spells that you're working with? How do you how do you keep yourself grounded to that intention? Like with that example, how did you, you know, how can and and really how can someone else that wants to use microdosing or or higher dosages with an intention in mind? How was it just the act of of making the calendar? Is it is it a mantra that you use? How how are you how are you keeping yourself grounded to your intention? Because it's otherwise it can be you know it can be easy to lose that intention. You are 100% correct, Andrew. Uh, so what I do is there's the spell casts that I do on myself, which are all ego tempering spells. So as just one example, uh, for a full day or several days during that the upside down A cycle, I won't use the word I at all. No, I want this. I believe that. I think this. Nope. You cannot use the word I. Two things are going to happen. They're going to notice real fast. One you're going to have to come up with some very creative ways to say sentences. And that's good because that builds your, your creativity magic. All my magic builds on itself. And two, what you're going to notice real fast is that when your friends come to you with, uh, you know, if they have a problem, they want advice, how often you actually use that as an excuse to talk about yourself. You'll notice that real fast as well. So these are just little ego tempering things that I do to kind of keep myself in check. Now, uh, there's something else I do on each one of those days that I'm taking like the unasshole cycle. I don't, uh, let, let's get into this now because, um, this is one of the major differences between microdosing and microdosing magic with microdosing. You're just taking your dose and going about your day with me, with me, microdosing me taking a dose that, that takes an hour. I take my mushrooms and then I meditate for a half hour because that's about as long as it takes for an experienced meditator to reach a, you know, that, that calmed headspace and, you know, that meditative space. Now, coincidentally, because Gaia loves us so much, a half hour is also about as long as it takes for mushrooms to start kicking in. And so what happens is I'll switch at that half hour mark from uh, meditation to visualization. 
and I'll do visualization techniques because once the mushrooms start firing, it's like in the creative juices are flowing. It's very hard to hold a visual space. I mean, it's hard to hold a visual space even without the aid of a psychedelic, but with it, it's like adding extra, you know, weights to a, to a barbell. It's very difficult. But what I do in that visualization space, and this gets back to your question is I'll think of scenarios that ordinarily would have probably pissed me off. And in my head, I react to it in a calm and focused and, and in an unasshole kind of way. And now it, there'll be just general things like uh, somebody, if somebody cuts me off or something, or somebody goes a little over there, oh, I should shut my phone off. Sorry. Um, somebody goes a little over the, uh, you know, the white line by a stop sign on my bike, they almost hit me, things like that. It's just setting up and thinking about things that might potentially happen. Or if you have a, um, a, uh, some kind of uh, a work project or something at your job and you're a little concerned because one of the people on your team is kind of lazy. Um, when you're having that conversation, you know, in your head with that person, be nice and try at that point to think of how do I get the most out of this team member? Not how do I belittle this guy and, you know, force him to do a job. What are the things that I could say here in this space, in this visualization space that I have total control over? What can I set up? What kind of scene can I create so that, you know, Bob over here actually, you know, isn't bringing up the rear. So different things like that. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, spells, when I talk about spells, I'm casting on myself. It's these visualizations and the, these exercises, like not saying I or not talking for a full day is another thing I'll do. Um, and not a day where, you know, I'm just going to binge watch YouTube all day. Like I will plan a very active day with friends and, you know, go do all kinds of activities, but not say a word through the whole thing. Yeah, that's really, that's very helpful. Um well, so there, and you, so there's a lot of other spells in your book besides just oh, yeah. uh, mushrooms. I mean, would you would you be up for uh, kind of talking about maybe one or two of the uh, uh, just offhand? Uh, I mean, there's some that were sexually oriented. There were some that involved mandrake and cannabis. And oh, and, sure. Uh, I mean, I'd love to sure. just hear a couple, just share a couple other uh, random spells with people because there's quite an eclectic mix in there. Sure. Let's uh, let's talk about everybody's favorite, the witchy baptism. Yeah. Uh, this one, uh, it started off. Sorry, this stupid phone. Uh, the witchy baptism is a way to determine because some people at like, how do I know if I'm, you know, if I'm drawn to the craft or I feel like I'm a witch, but I don't know. This is a great way to tell if you are truly a witch or not. And it's also a great just cleansing spell. And it's called the witchy baptism. And what you do is you eat a large meal, usually heavy in protein. Uh, for me, I just <laughs> sorry, um, uh, a meal heavy in protein. So for me, that would be a big greasy bar burger and an IPA. the The point of all this is for a back end purge, essentially. So what you do is you have a a pretty heavy meal, heavy meal of heavy protein. And I'll go into the woods and you use uh, leaves and sticks and twigs and stuff. And you make a big circle on the ground. And then you, you, you draw out a star making a pentacle, you know, in, in the circle. Then you dig a hole in the middle of the star. Uh, then you roll around on the ground, getting all the dirt, all the debris, all the everything all over you. Get as muddy and dirty as possible. 
Then I get up, uh, or I should say, I take all my clothes off, socks and shoes included, totally naked, rolling around on the ground in the woods because <laughs> I'm a healthy person. No. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, um, so then uh, all clothes off, you squat over the hole and you smoke a bowl because uh, cannabis, you know, loosens everything up and you just defecate into that hole. You create art with your shit. And then you go, hopefully find yourself a river. I usually do it by a little stream and I wash myself off in the stream and just get all the gunk and everything out of me. And it's just a way to kind of cleanse yourself. Um, Oh, I should say, go there with an intention. I totally forgot that part. Excuse me. You have to go there thinking of something that you're trying to just kind of undo about yourself. Um, Maybe it's a habit you're trying to give up. It could be very useful for that. And uh, just making art out of the most, you know, disgusting thing about you, your poop. Yeah, that was a, that was a, that was a pretty interesting, uh, vivid, vivid spell. I, when I read that part, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. Cool. And there's the part two, the sunshine up your ass. So there's, there's the part one is the witchy baptism. Part two, sunshine up your ass is then you get yourself on a rock as best you can. Again, start naked. You bend over. And you just open up your cheeks as much as you can, and you sing songs to Apollo about having sunshine up your ass, and you just let that sunshine just fill up all that space that you just emptied out. What is that? What is that sunshine part? What do you? What do you feel? What do you feel from that? Just the love. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's being out in the sunshine. I mean, it's it's beautiful. I mean, just that alone is good for your just you know your your, your mental well being. So the way I see it. Laying out in the sun is good for you. Taking it up the ass from the sun has got to be much better. Right? That's the logic. So, huh? It's very, very symbolic. Uh, very symbolic. Interesting. Um, and there's a song I'll sing about it, about having sunshine up my ass and things like that. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I mean, I think uh, I, I have a personal interest in symbols, so I mean, I think if it's not too you know, open up a question. I think the last question I wanted to ask was, do you, what is, what is a, you know, what's it a personally a very important symbol to you and, and uh, that maybe you could share with, with others that it might be, might be helpful for them, uh, the connection with it. Uh, so for me, the, my favorite is, and this is going to sound so cliche, but it's true. So whatever uh, is the pentacle. I got this, this wooden one hanging up here and um yeah, it's got some Amanita mushrooms hanging on it, too, so it's a little difficult to see. Yeah, I actually got a little more. Hold on. We go foraging, so I got some more Amanitas right here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, where were we? Sorry. Well, the, the symbol of the pentacle, what does that the symbol, mean? Yeah, the pentacle, yeah, sorry. Uh, the um, So for me, it, the, the meaning of it has to do with a, a Kabbalistic principle. Now, this is not going to resonate with some of your listeners that are into magic because I've, I, I've totally overthrown, excuse me, not overthrown, but I've ignored previous systems. My magical system, I developed myself over a lifetime. So there are certain things about it that don't actually jive with other magical traditions. And one of them is my obsession with the pentacle because um, I mix a Kabbalistic principle called the law of natural governance onto the pentacle. The Kabbalistic law of natural governance is a, again, it's a spell you cast on yourself. And it simply states that we are all born onto this land, obviously. And in between ourselves and our land, there are three other points. 
there's so there's the land is point one there's the community within the land so for me that's the psychedelic renaissance then there's your friends those people within the community so for me that'd be guys like chris bennett cody nacconi or Rishta uh, dean uh, martin ball a bunch of others then there's your family which we all come from and then there's yourself so you have the five uh sorry oop, there it is uh land community friends family self and this law of natural governance states that Serve yourself, serve your family, serve your friends, serve your community, and serve your land, and all will do so in kind, allowing you to bring your inner world into the outer world. And being able to walk along this path, the path you choose for yourself. I mean, I uh, I won't get into all that, but anyway, I was about to ramble again. But um, yeah, so that's that's why I, I personally love the pentacle, is for that reason, is because that's what it means for me. Well, I, I got to ask one more, even though I said I was done with my questions, because you oh, mentioned sure. the, the Amanita muscaria mushroom, and that's 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 a very interesting one to me, just because, um, well, it's 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 poisonous. So, I mean, what, how do you so how do you work with that, uh, and how do you what do you, what do you do with that? So, with Amanita, you have to dry it, um, dry it really really well. Uh, most people have food dehydrators uh, that they'll that they'll use to dry the mushrooms. Uh, they're they're pretty excellent in wine. Amanita muscaria. So my partner and I are going to be getting into now that we're actually in the mushroom picking season. We're going to go get some more Amanita muscaria and start making some Amanita muscaria wine, and uh, you know, kind of just experiment with that a little bit. So the wine, the wine makes it safe to just safe to consume and get the and get. Oh the... no, it's uh, it, it's safe to consume. Uh, so it's so Amanita muscaria weird because. Everything you read about the Amanita muscaria will tell you that this is very dangerous. It's not even worth it. You're just going to get not right. Yeah, exactly. But anybody that's ever taken Amanita muscaria says the opposite. It says, actually, it's a really really mild kind of trip. It's not even really trippy. It's more of um, there's just uh, somewhat distortions in the size of your body and um, distance between things. Um, So... uh, yeah, it, it's again it, the it. They don't seem to be all that dangerous as long as they're prepared properly, and that's you know that's true with most things. As long as you prepare it the right way, it, it's probably not going to harm you too much. The only the the only real question. I mean, we're kind of running out of time here, man. But the only question I had kind of goes back to your um, what we first were talking about with the uh, psychedelic mystery traditions. Um, I've been focusing a lot on the psychedelic artwork uh, historically as well as like recently they don't oddly enough um, from my perspective psychedelic artwork hasn't really changed usually in the old traditions it's very detailed uh, very colorful and um, strangely enough shows this like usually a person um, or something like that represents a person um, being very um, um, very like if you draw a line down the center of it it's like the same on both sides. The person has, it's, you know, your head, your person has generally the same sides if you cut it down the of middle. Of course. So, yeah, yeah. but there are slight differences as well. So like um, in some of the old traditional artwork that you you showed us in the conference, um, sometimes on the left side and right side, the, the individual or the artistic representation of the individual is holding different things. Um, and also you showed um, where the shaman was building their kind of their temple and in the center they kind of had like jewels that were aligned very uh or the cross very uh central 
And then on, on the right and left side, it seemed like it was very distinct differences in that. Um, and I, I hope that you're kind of getting where I'm going with this question. And I'm trying to see from your perspective, have you noticed any of those um, like symbol, symbolical um, relationships to like the human body or the human spirit being like left and right and center um, through these artistic ren- renders um, of through history and today? And what maybe that means to you if you did notice that? Because I haven't really noticed it until now. So I'm trying to, um, from somebody that has researched a lot about this stuff, I, I'd imagine that you kind of picked up on that. Are Are you referring to like the the liminal space? Like, is that right. what you mean? Where you, yeah. Okay. So, so where you, you have, have like Ishtar. Yeah, you had that in the shamanic. Um, I mean, this is like a really drawn out question. It's not really even a question. It's like discussion. <laughs> um, in the shamanic um, preparation, preparation, the you had the cross in the center. Um, sometimes they had like the stones and stuff like that in the center too. But then on the, on the outside, they definitely had like, it seemed like almost a masculine and a feminine side to, um, the tools that they were going to be used during the ceremonies. Um, and then art in the art, you can, if you, I've started to look at like the modern psychedelic artwork as well. And I'm, I'm seeing these same kind of patterns where it's like a feminine, uh, side and a masculine side with a center being like the human body or a oh. goddess or something like that representation uh, representing like a holistic um, synchronicity kind of experience and I'm wondering if you've picked up on that as well because you've looked at historical yeah. artwork all your life yeah 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 uh, absolutely so um you see it mostly in alchemy treatises with like the divine hermaphrodite as well. And they're just, yeah, they're, they're representing the the polarities of life at the end of the day. It's just that you need both of these creative forces in order to make something happen in the middle. Um, Nothing. I'm trying to think. The thing is the, the, the pieces, especially the alchemical pieces are just a little too complicated to get into at this point if we're about to end this no no i understand Uh, yeah yeah. it's um it just yeah it has to do uh i write in in psychedelic mystery traditions about the sacred marriage and that is this um you know this coming together of these two forces at uh, eleusis they had the haye kaye cry which they'd say rain conceive haye kaye Mm. rain conceive to the sky and to the ground and that again is part of the sacred marriage the idea also of adding at least it, it seems to be um a psychedelic to alcohol also represented this sacred marriage hmm. in the ancient world the alcohol representing the dionysian uh male and the um the pharmacon as i call it representing the demeter uh sacred feminine and that was you put the two together and and you you have this you know what would we even call it just just this kind of like almost epiphany in a glass now that makes sense man um yeah thanks i i mean i'm just gonna be focusing on that a lot more and really look at it from that perspective. So thanks for um, giving that answer. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. What what are some ways that people can get a hold of you, get, um, get your books, um, find out more information about who you are and, and what you're doing? Uh, Sure. Um, 
psychedelicwitch.com is my website and uh, my books are all there uh, uh, for purchase and I have some articles and some videos on there as well. Um, I'm on Instagram at witchydelic, W-I-T-C-H-Y-D-E-L-I-C and of course facebook.com slash the psychedelic witch. So the website is just psychedelic witch. Facebook is the psychedelic witch. Awesome, man. All right, great. Well, thanks for spending so much time with uh, Andrew and me and um, talking about your experiences and your work. It's been uh, enlightening, even though Andrew spent a lot of time with you. I've been listening and just blown away by, especially the stories. The stories were always great. So thanks so much, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot, Tom. Yeah, it was uh, really enlightening. Uh, I really enjoy your work because of all the symbols. It's kind of inspiring for me, man. And I I met you at the end of the conference. It was was cool, man. yeah, I was gonna say there's a it's very there's a familiarity to your smile. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was like, like there's so, no, seriously, there, there are so many people that it, it, it's it's a little tough to keep up sometimes. Like it's 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 a lot. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode of Cosmic Echo and would like to learn more about Tom and his work, you can visit our website at tailleaders.com backslash ce podcast. Additionally, if you'd like to continue the discussion about this episode or other Cosmic Echo episodes, you can do so by clicking on Community at the same website. We look forward to bringing you additional episodes in the near future, but until then, happy dreaming.